Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, we, we come. We come with hearts that long to exalt you. We confess that that's not always true of us in every moment of every day, but in this moment, Jesus, when our minds have been moved to that place to remember, to remember our need for you alone, to remember that God, no matter what we have faced this week, no matter which fear has come against us, no matter which foe we've stood in the presence of, God, that Jesus, it's you alone that we long for. God, there are some in this very room, some that were in the first service who are walking through a sorrow that you never intended for us to bear, a grief that's heavy a battle with a disease, a battle in a relationship. And we just come back to realizing once again, Jesus, it's you alone that will see us through these things. As we have reconnected this week to the reality of our own weakness, though we try to cover it with our strength, Jesus, we come back to realize it's you alone. It's you alone that we need. It's you alone who can give us strength in our weakness. You amaze us, Jesus. And so we come to you in this moment seeking you alone, turning away from the idols of our heart, those other things that we have tried to pursue that wreck us, that end up leaving us empty and longing for something else. We turn from those in this moment and we come back and we declare yes to one another in song, but even more to our souls themselves that Jesus, it's you alone that we need, that I need. And so I come in this moment asking you, Jesus alone, hide me behind your cross as we open your word together so that you alone are the one that is seeing your power, your might, your glory, your kingdom. Jesus, we want to see you alone now. Help us to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning and thank you. And you knew the drill, so you sat down. I didn't have to instruct. I... I love that. Let's me know that I am in the midst of astuteness. Don't you love being thought of as astute? It's a good thing. Hey, um, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4, so if you want to grab your Bibles and make your way there, we're going to make our way through uh, that entire chapter uh, today. And um, before we dive into Nehemiah chapter 4, I want to share with you a passage of Scripture I was listening 
through um, 1 Corinthians this week, and uh, I, I love just listening to Scripture as I drive. And I was listening to 1 Corinthians, and the last chapter in 1 Corinthians is chapter 16. I was captured by two verses, verses 8 and 9, and they say this. Paul was writing... Um, literally writing, uh, he, he was, I mean, he was in Ephesus writing to Corinth, and he says this at the close of uh, the, this first letter to the Corinthians, verse 8, he says, I will stay here in Ephesus until the day of Pentecost. And verse 9, he says, there is a real opportunity here for great and worthwhile work, even though there are many opponents. Anybody else in the room feel like you may be facing some opponents these days? Some, some, some opposition in your life that you just need God to step into? I, I believe this with my whole heart. Every opportunity that I have ever been given has been faced with some level of opposition. And I've discovered that the greater the opportunity, the greater the opposition that comes against it. And I, I've just seen that to be true. I don't think you can have opportunity without opposition. I think that's part of what uh, our brother Paul was communicating when he was writing this letter to uh, the Corinthians. And Jesus told us, his followers, in Matthew chapter 16, it's not in your notes. Uh, you can write it down and look it up later, Matthew 16, 18, that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell themselves would not prevail against his church. Now, what Jesus didn't say was that there'd be no opposition to his church because there has been great and continues to be great opposition to the church of Christ. But there's also incredible opportunity for those of us who would step into to be a part of the work that Christ calls uh, us into with him, kingdom work. It's, it's the greatest opportunity on the planet to be a part of building, uh, working with Jesus to build his prevailing church and part of that means not just this building or this group of people but his church at work in the world to understand the capital c church that we're part of of this great opportunity to be a part of building that so that any gospel-centered christ-loving church succeeds we all win and we need to be cognitive of that we also need to understand that we're going to face opposition in every area of our lives where there's opportunity. So, for instance, if you have had the opportunity to have children or grandchildren, there's going to be opposing forces in the world that are going to pit themselves against those children being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Forces are going to come against that opposition. If you've been given maybe a great opportunity at work in the marketplace, there are going to be opposing forces. If you've been given a great opportunity at school to, to serve or, or lead in some way, there's going to be opposition come against you. If you've been given the opportunity to have a marriage, there's going to be opposition that's going to come against your marriage. And we need to be prepared for that. We, we, just, we, we need to do that. And I, I want to I do something for just a second. This is not a message about marriage, but if you're a husband or a wife, I want to encourage you to, to, to think about personally translating some of what we're going to talk about today onto your marriage. 
think about it this week, pray through it this week to, to just think about how can I apply the principles that we're going to talk about today in the arena uh, of my marriage. Now, last week we closed out uh, with the thought uh, of one of Paul's teachings in Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare. And he told us that we need it to, in verse 11 uh, of Ephesians 6, we need to put on the full armor of God so that we can take a stand against what? The devil's schemes. That means there are schemes that the devil has to come against us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth again, chapter 2, we read these words. Paul writes, And what I have forgiven, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Friends, the schemes of Satan are going to be the greatest opposing force in your life at all times. Now, it, it will manifest itself through people and, and, and difficult circumstances, but your, your opposer is, is the enemy. And he's going to oppose your physical life, your relational life, your financial life, your vocational life, your sexual life. He's going to oppose every area of your life. You're going to face opposition. And so what I want us to do is be captured by this, that, that, that it's coming. You know, one of the words that Scripture uses, a name that's given to Satan, is he's the adversary. Another way to say that it is opponent. He is our great uh, opponent. So the question that I want us to kind of delve into today, out of the fourth chapter of the book of Nehemiah, is how can we thrive in this life while facing opposition? And I want to give you three ways we can do that. The first one is this. We can, we can thrive in the face of opposition if we know the schemes of the opposition, of our opponent. Knowing his schemes will help us thrive in the face of opposition. So I want to go through a couple of those schemes. These aren't all of them. These are just some that show up in the book of Nehemiah in the fourth chapter. The first one is the scheme of insults. Scheme of insults. This is a powerful tool, and it is used all over the world today, but it was also an ancient tactic. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 3. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore this for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burn ones at, at, at that? And then Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down the stone wall. See, this scheme of insults was alive in that day, and it is very alive in our day. How many of you recently heard one politician insult another it's alive today how many of you have experienced or maybe witnessed insults back and forth on social media or any media for that matter i mean this it, this is an age-old ancient tactic scheme but oh my goodness it is alive today friends one of the saddest places that this scheme is operational today is in marriages. Marriages debilitate to that place where they start exchanging insults. Friends, you need outside help. You're, if, if you've devolved to that, you need outside help. 
You need somebody else to come alongside you. We'll talk about what that could look like in a little bit. But this, this, uh, this strategy of insult, you know that there are books about the marketplace that will train you how to properly insult your opponents so that they're minimized in the eyes of competition. It, it, it's this, some of the books, it's kind of like marketplace warfare. These, these strategies that, that do that. You know, the world has constantly put down the people of God. And it continues to do that, make fun, poke fun, characterize us as weak and ignorant and fanatical. You know, all pastors are either wimps or crooks or something in between. You know, it's just, that's the, the language of the day. It's constant insults. So, so why, why is this scheme so pervasive throughout time? Why is it an ancient tactic and a current tactic today? Because it's, it's powerful. And it's powerful because it attacks how we see ourselves. It attacks our self-worth. It attacks our, 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 our identity. You know, and in this pandemic, oh my gosh, we've seen so much of that. I, I know personally, in this building, not in this, in this room, but in this building, I was one day, in a derogatory way, called a sheep because of my understanding that masks can slow the spread of an airborne virus. I was called a sheep to my face. And I thought, you know, I kind of took it as a, a badge to wear because one of the things I regularly pray for myself is, Jesus, I want to be a sheep in your pasture. And so I thought, cool, the guys recognize what I've asked for. You know, he sees me as a sheep. Yay, God. Um, now, I knew that's not what he meant, but that was the thought that ran through my mind because I do see myself as a sheep in his pasture. And I had armed myself with the word of God, and so that insult didn't have a place to land. But insults come against our identity, and I would love, I really would, would love to stop here and just camp out and do a message on our identity. But I got some good news for you. We got more stuff to do than that, and in three weeks... Three Sundays from now, on Reformation Sunday, some people think it's Halloween, but it's not. It's going to be Reformation Sunday, just so you know. On Reformation Day, Dean Infinger is going to be bringing a message on identity, and I can't wait for that to happen. So make plans for that on Reformation Day. And so there, there's this coming message on identity that will help us step into this. Now, do you remember from what we read a moment ago um, in the opening verses of Nehemiah, what prompted Sanballat to hurl all these insults at God's people? Look at verse 1 again. It says this. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Friends, here's what insults always are. Insults are always, always a substitute for intelligent dialogue. That's what people do. They trade insults for intelligence when somebody starts ridiculing you, what they're substituting for is reason. We don't want to come reason together. What we want to do is come ridicule each other. That, that's a substitute for the gospel's pattern. See, if people can't intellectually move you to maybe their position, they'll start insulting you. you know. And usually, here's what I've discovered, is those people who move to insults as a means of trying to communicate are usually afraid. 
Sanballat here was afraid. He was afraid that the Jews were going to succeed. And that's what, that's what puts people on the, uh, using that scheme of Satan, turning to insults, is they're, they're afraid you're going to succeed. They're afraid that you're right in your conviction. You know, in verse 2, Sanballat called them feeble Jews. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but that's, that's a racist attack. He was attacking their, their race. He goes on to make fun of their faith. They're going to sacrifice again? Who do they think they are? He, he goes on and on and on. And that's typical with insults. And verse 3 shows us something about this scheme of insults. Uh, insult, that strategy, that scheme, is contagious. Once Sanballat starts it, did you know who jumped on? Tobiah piled on. And here's the truth uh, about that insult strategy, there will be people who in and of themselves are, are such cowards, they would never, ever, never, ever engage in insulting you on their own. But if somebody else picks it up and does it, they'll jump on the bandwagon. They'll, they'll just jump right in there because that's what cowards do. So recognize them for what they are. A second scheme here uh, is the scheme of intimidation. We see in this, is this account uh, from Nehemiah 4, the opposition starts to organize. Look at verse 6. It says, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its heights, for the people had a mind to work. Verse 7, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that we were repairing the walls of Jerusalem, was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Now, just instead of just, you know, a couple of critics, now we've got a whole conspiracy theory running around out there. Sanballat has kind of gathered all the disgruntled parties that were resisting the rebuilding. And if you, if you go back and you kind of study this, one of the things you'll see is that Sanballat and the Samaritans were kind of to the north. The Arabs were coming from the south. Tobiah and the Ammonites were from the east. And the men of Ashdod were coming in from the west. So basically, God's people were completely surrounded who were now conspiring against them. Have you ever experienced this, maybe seen it in the workplace or something like this, is that negativity attracts negative people? You ever seen how that works? I mean, it's just like magnetic negativity, if somebody just has a negative spirit, they'll attract other negative people all around them, and then it'll just, it'll just kind, of, kind of grow. And so they start to stir up trouble. They start to come around each other, and so it's, it's kind of everywhere. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you, when you run into a person like that, it almost seems like that's their job description, their, their raison d'etre, their reason for living is to, is to just simply be anti-something, just against everything, you know? I don't know if you met people like that, but they just seem to be against everything. And that's what that scheme of intimidation builds into people. A third scheme that we see here is the scheme of insinuation, the, the scheme of insinuation. And what happens here when this begins is the rumor mill cranks up. It starts turning over, and people start getting stirred up and start believing all kind of foolish things are, are true, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 11, we read this. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. 
At that time, the Jews who lived near them, the ones making these threats near them, came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. See, here's, here's what they were saying is, they were saying, we're going to sneak in and we're going to attack you. And they, they just kept repeating it. See, the, the quickest way to get lies and insinuations and rumors spread is to lace it with fear. That's what drives this kind of, kind of thinking. The reality was, Sanballat and the, the Samaritan army and, and the Ashdodites, they did not really have the power to come against the Jews in this moment. Do you, do you know why? Do you remember, if you've been with us since the beginning of our study of Nehemiah, do you remember who King Artaxerxes sent with Nehemiah? He sent armed forces. He sent an elite guard. He sent the cavalry. You go back and look at it in chapters 1 and 2. That's who he sent with Nehemiah. Now, the whole building project only took 52 days. More than likely, those people were still there. And so if Sanballat and, and Tobiah had actually acted on what they were, you know, the rumor they were spraying, the insinuation they were creating, they would have been standing against the king of Persia, who was actually their boss. Now, just think about how silly that was. But they got this insinuation going, and it started to, to spread. And here's some realities about the scheme of insinuation. Insinuation gains traction in those who are closest to the opposition. So when you have opponents in your life, one of the things that will happen is the people who are closest in proximity relationally to those people, they're going to pick up that scheme. They're going to start feeding on it. It'll be a little feeding frenzy, and they'll start kind of coming against you too. Look at verse 12. It said, and at that time, the Jews who lived near them, these were the Jews that did not live in Jerusalem, but lived in the surrounding areas that were connected to Sanballat and Tobiah, some of them relationally even. It was kind of crazy. And so they were feeding on this, and then when they came to work on the wall in the city, they'd bring these lies, these insinuations, these, these rumors I don't know about you, but I know this. When I have been at times in my life around negative people for a large, long period of time, do you know what happens to me? I begin to take that on. I, I have seen that happen in my own soul to kind of start to, to take that on. It, it, it's infectious. See, friends, here, the, the point here is that if Satan can get somebody inside the camp to start saying it can't be done, there's no way we can ward off this enemy. What he does is he fills the ranks with insinuations, spreads, which is the certain characteristic of insinuation. And insinuations get exaggerated when they're repeated. I think it's fascinating that the scriptures points out that they were this got repeated in their hearing ten times. They're basically saying. These people would not shut up with this insinuation over and over again. They just kept telling us, we're going to come attack you. You're going to get attacked in your sleep. I mean, the, this was the voice that they were hearing. They said it ten times just re repeating it. When insinuations continue to get repeated and passed around, people start believing that it's true. Friends, one of the things the scriptures tell us about wise people is wise people do not believe lies and insinuations. Now, we may chew on them for a little bit, 
we sometimes we need to chew on them to make sure that, you know, it's, there's not something true going on there. But we don't swallow. Wise people don't swallow insinuations. Wise people spit them out. Okay? We, we, don't, we don't swallow them. We, we spit them out. So we need to keep understanding that we, we, we can know the schemes of the opposition, and doing so will help us thrive. Secondly, we need to know the impact that the opposition can have on our own lives. We need to recognize the impact. Uh, we, we need to understand it so we can tell if it is landing on us, if we are beginning to be impacted by that. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, it says, In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. So the people doing the work starting to fail, their strength. This is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Folks, when you're working hard at something, an opportunity that God has given you, and you're bombarded by insult and intimidation and insinuations, here's an impact. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to get discouraged because discouragement is the primary tool of opposition. It's the primary kind of impact in our lives of opposition is discouragement. Now, when does discouragement normally set in? When you're given an opportunity, does it, does it set in at the very start of the opportunity? Normally not. Normally, what are we excited? I, I just gave it away. Normally, we're excited when an opportunity presents itself. We're ready to dive in. This is going to be great. It's a great opportunity. Thank you, God, for sending this. But what happens is about midway, people start to get discouraged because it's not finishing. In, in verse 6, it's, I don't think it's going to come up on the screen, but you can go back and look. In verse 6, it says, So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height. So we're about halfway through the building project here. This is when this discouragement starts to set in. Let me see if I can prove this truth. How many of you, other than me, have at least one unfinished project at home right now? Okay, maybe halfway done, and you got a little discouraged. You know, got distracted by someone else. You think, I'm not going to have time to do it, so you, you kind of give up. Okay? It's just true. All, all, of us, all of us face this. You know, even, even my own experience and from the life of Nehemiah, discouragement sets in. We know that. And there, there are at least four, for, at least from this account in Nehemiah, there are at least four determinants of discouragement, four things that can bring about discouragement. I want to point them out really, really quickly. They, they show up out of verses 11 and 12. First, we, we see this, this part of verse 11. It says, uh, the strength of those building is giving out. And that's fatigue. When our strength gives out, when we're weary, and we're fatigued, discouragement can set in. The next phrase was there, there was just too much rubble. I don't know if you've ever looked at something and just thought, I'm just so overwhelmed by this. You just kind of don't do anything. And that's, that's frustration. Frustration will bring about discouragement if we're not careful. And then uh, the, the, the statement, we'll not be able to rebuild. That points to failure. 
there's this thought, we're we're not going to succeed, we're just going to fail, so why why continue? And then lastly, they were thinking about that insinuation, we're going to kill them and stop the work, and that's fear. So we see here, discouragement can be brought on by fatigue or frustration or failure or fear. And in this account, all four were at work. Sometimes, man, when those things line up in your life, when you've got this great opportunity and then opposition sets in and these four things show up, man, it it, it feels overwhelming. And and friends, I just want to say, please grab hold of this. Your adversary, the, the opposition, has two big goals every time he brings discouragement into your life. Every time he does it, there are two things that he wants to hinder. The first is this. He wants to hinder the growth of the word of God in your heart and mind. He wants to discourage that, to hinder that work, uh, the, the growth of the word of God. And he wants to stop the work of God in your life. The Bible says that you are being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus if you're in Christ. Satan wants to stop that from growing in this life. Now, here's the cool thing. It cannot be stopped. This book promises that your glorification is coming one day. But in this life, you and I can give in to discouragement to the point that that work of transformation gets stopped. Satan wins a victory when that happens. When when Christians live defeated. So, So what do we do? What, what, can, what can you and I do? Well, here's what we can do. We can have a God-honoring response to the opposition when it comes. There are God-honoring responses that you and I can engage in. And I want to give you five that I see from this account in God's word. The first one is this. You can turn to God and trust him. That's the first response that we see Nehemiah doing is that we return to God and trust in him. Now, I know some of you are saying, duh. Well, here's what I've discovered. Just because we know something, and just because it's said from this stage over and over and over again, doesn't mean we're engaging it. Doesn't mean we're doing it. We need reminding that we need to turn to God and put our trust in him. We need to quit trying to trust in our strengths. Here's what normally happens Immediately when we start coming face-to-face with opposition, we try to power up from within, usually out of our flesh. We try to power up instead of taking the issue to the Lord and, and, and trusting in him. I want you to watch what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Now, the, the ridicule and the insinuations and the insults have come. This is what, how Nehemiah responds in verse 4. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, would you, would you say that, that, is a, that, that Nehemiah is having a warm, fuzzy experience towards those insulters? No. I mean, he's basically saying, hey, God... Take them out. Just take them out. Take them out, not just of this world. Take them out of all eternity. You just blot them out, God. Now, you can pray that way. It doesn't mean God's going to answer it. 
Okay, he makes those decisions. But here's, here's what I, I want you to notice. When, when Nehemiah was being insulted and intimidated, instead of suppressing it and holding it, and this is what Christians, we do too often. Instead of just holding all that stuff bottled in, Nehemiah confessed it to God. He just took it to God and poured it out. He admitted to God he was experiencing this. And Nehemiah said, God, we're trusting you to defend us. Here's what Nehemiah doesn't do. He doesn't engage in name-calling. He doesn't engage in the insult exchange. Instead of calling names, Nehemiah calls on God. That's what you and I need to do. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 says this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. I love that verse. Don't, don't play the game. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't get in the pig pen. Don't roll around in the mud with them. You know, if you're getting insulted for your faith or, or some other reason, don't, don't answer back with the same thing. God's Word says that's foolishness. The Bible says instead pray. And here's the deal, friends. The greater the opposition becomes, the more time you need to spend and the more you need to depend on God in prayer. The more you need to do that. Now, here, here's this biblical jewel that I hope you walk away with. It's not in your notes. You may have to write this one down. When you're insulted, our natural response is to take it out on people. But a proper response is instead we talk it out with God. Don't take it out on people. Talk it out with God. That's what we see Nehemiah doing. He turns, he turns to God. He ignores the insult. Outwardly, he ignores it. But inwardly, he takes it to God. And it's the best response. Ignore the insult. Take it to God and, and press on. The only way that insults can ever stop a work of God is if we let it. The only way that insults can stop any work is if, if we let it. Now, here's what, here's what I've seen can happen uh, when we just kind of ignore it. One of two things happens. Sometimes, very often, the insults dissipate. But sometimes they intensify. Sometimes they get bigger, and that's what happened here in Nehemiah. And we need to be aware of these schemes. In verse 8 that we read earlier, it said, They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And this leads us to see kind of a second God-honoring response to opposition that, that Nehemiah engaged in. It was this. He rightly regarded his opposition. He, he had a proper understanding of the opposition. He, write, he didn't just write them off as, you know, weird or dumb or, you know, just that kind of thing. He rightly regarded his opponents. Look at verse 9. It says, And we pray to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Nehemiah did two things. He did the prayerful thing and he did the practical thing. See, a wise person, you know, does this. When they lay down in bed at night, they may pray. I hope you do. Lord, protect our home. But don't ask God to protect your home if you're not going to lock your doors. You know, we need to both be prayerful and practical. I think it was Dr. Adrian Rogers, I'm crediting him anyway, who I first heard say this, petition without precaution is presumption. And it's true. We, we need to pray, but then we need to practically engage the wise things that God has given us. 
Friends, when opposition increases, the God-honoring response is to also increase our prayer life. And I want you to notice how it played out with Nehemiah. Verse 9 starts out, and we, personal pronoun we, and we prayed. Now up to this point, we've seen Nehemiah praying. He's the one that's been doing the praying. Now he's engaged the faith community. Now Nehemiah reaches out to others to say, would you join me in prayer? First of all, Nehemiah had modeled a life of prayer in front of his people. And now when the opposition increases, he invites his co-laborers into prayer with him. Excuse my language for a moment. But friends, this is where I watch so many Christians get their butts kicked. It's because, because of pride, I think. We don't reach out to some brothers and sisters and tell them, here's the struggle, I need you praying with me. Because we don't rightly regard the power of the opposition. I see this especially these days in marriages. Spouses wait too long to invite others to join in prayer. I've watched as parents have suffered in silence when their kids are kind of going off the tracks because they're afraid somebody's going to think if I tell them what's going on and I ask them to pray, they're going to think I'm not a perfect parent. You're not. Goodness. There's one. And just in case you got confused, you ain't him. Goodness. It's God. None of us are perfect parents. And we need to be mindful of that because when the opposition of the world increases against our kids we need to be praying for one another when there's corporate opposition there needs to be corporate response and we need to see that when we're facing the enemy because behind every enemy that we can see there's an unseen one at work and now in this account we see the whole people of God are praying And they're posting a guard. The Bible tells us that they set up a guard, you know, 24 hours. They got this new, they installed an alarm system, basically, is what what happened here. So that if if an attack came. And so, friends, we need to to pray, but we also need to be aware of the opposition. You know, one of the phrases that is repeated over and over in Scripture is this phrase. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Jesus said it. Paul said it, Peter said it, watch, watch and pray. Watching is the human part of the divine engagement. Praying is going to God because there are some things that only God can do. But we're called to do both. And when you rightly regard your opposition, you will do both. Third thing that we need to do, or a right response is, is we need to know our weaknesses and we need to strengthen their Nehemiah prayed, and he invited others into his prayer, and he posted a guard because he rightly regarded his opponents. But then look at verse 13. It says, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans, some translations say by their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Here's what Nehemiah was doing. Nehemiah was looking for the the, the weak places in the, the wall that's being rebuilt where it's not as high yet. And he starts stationing guards there. You know, the goal was to get the thing, you know, maybe about, uh, about 10 foot high. But it, it wasn't in many places. And so they were exposed. And so what Nehemiah did was he strengthened the weaknesses. So here's kind of 
the question of application. Right now, and it's true for all of us, right now, where's a weak spot in your life? Where's the weakness? Is it in a relationship? Is it at work? Is it at school? Is it in your parenting? Is it in, in your marriage? Right now, where, where is that weak spot? And if you're saying, I, I ain't got no weak spot, then you got a blind spot. And you need somebody to come alongside you who can spot your blind spots because you got weak spots. We all do. And we need, in order to be able to strengthen in our weak spots, to have people around us, wise people, who will tell us. But we've got to be humble people in order to know that, to realize we've all got blind spots. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16, we read, From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held spears, shields, bows, and courts of mail. And the leaders stood behind uh, the, the whole house uh, of Judah, and they were building the wall. They, they just continued on. This work was going on all around the city. And they couldn't fortify, you know, through armed forces. They didn't have enough to do both things. So Nehemiah said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have this system. And if you hear a trumpet blow, you run to the trumpet. Because that's where the enemy will be attacking if they come. See, friends, the idea here is... When opposition comes, we need to keep the lines of communication open, especially in our families, especially in our marriages. When we are being opposed, we've got to keep the lines of communication open. Nehemiah turned the whole camp into this kind of armed camp and movement. They both worked and carried a weapon. Now, friends, here's here's, here's, I will promise you this. Every time you start to build into an opportunity that God has given you, There's going to be a battle. There is just going to be a battle. Whether it's in your own spiritual life that you start to build into, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your parenting, in your home, whether it's in the church of of Christ himself, there's a coming battle. Why? Why is there a coming battle? Because Satan doesn't want any any of those things to succeed. If you build a thriving marriage, you know what it's going to do? It's going to bring glory to God. You know, God said that a marriage pictures our relationship, the relationship between Jesus and his church. And Satan hates the church. And because of that, he hates Christian marriages. He hates those things. You know, why, why, why is there going to be so much opposition to a church thriving? Because Satan hates the glory of God. He doesn't want God to get glory. He doesn't want people to know the truth. Now, here's the truth about me. I long for the day when all I have to do is build and not have to battle anymore. You know when that day is going to come? Either when I assume room temperature or Jesus comes back. Not before then. If I'm going to build, i got to battle too. They're, they're inseparable. And it's true for you. If you're going to build into anything, you're going to have to battle in the midst of it. You know, back in verse 13 we read, it says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in places, I stationed people by their clans. Some said by their families. Why, why, why do you think that's mentioned that way? I think it's because when you're under attack... You need to know you've got to have the support of people, people who are part of your family, 
Friends, the church is supposed to be the family of God. We got to battle together. And we need to be in smaller platoons and in small groups where people can actually get to know you so somebody can see your blind spots and your weak spots and help you know about them. Some people will pray for you who know earnestly about, uh, about your life, uh, that we battle together. Too many Christians these days just think they can fight the fight alone, and that's one of the reasons so many Christians live defeated lives. Because we were made for community. We need the support of one another. You know this. It's tough out there in the marketplace. It's hard. I don't care where you work. It's, it's difficult at times. Marriage, marriage can be difficult at times. Is it tough to be a Christian in public schools? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough out there. And we need the support of one another. Is it tough to maintain a Christ-like attitude in a society where everybody says, live for yourself? Yeah, it's tough to do that. So don't go it alone. Number four, encourage your battle buddies. Encourage your battle buddies. Your battle buddies need encouraging. I don't know what it is in the Navy. I know in, in the Air Force they're called wingmen. What are they called in the Navy? Army's battle buddies, I know that. Shipmates, whatever. I'll let them argue about that later. The, <laughs> I just start an argument and walk out. You notice that? The, um, but in the army is battle buddies. You need to encourage your battle buddies. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, we see Nehemiah said, And I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord. Nehemiah is he's encouraging, he's rallying the troops, he, he's, he's relieving fears, he's reinforcing their confidence. And did you notice what he was saying? Here's where you put your confidence. He didn't say, remember back in the days of King David when we were strong. He didn't say, remember back in the days, you know, when this battle was won. He said, remember the Lord. All you got to do, you just, all you need to remember is the Lord. Look to the future. Get your eyes off the opposition and get your eyes on God. Friends, when, when the devil come, uh, comes as your opponent to attack you, the first thing that he's going to try to do is, is to remove your focus from the Lord. He's, he's going to come at that. He's going to try to get you to focus on your financial statement that may be dismal. He's going to worry you about the, the economy, you know, all those kinds of things. But you've got to remember the Lord. And notice what Nehemiah says specifically. He says, remember the Lord. He talked about don't be afraid of them, but he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Now, the word that Nehemiah used for don't be afraid, and the word that now Nehemiah now uses for uh, remember the Lord who is awesome are the same Hebrew word. Same Hebrew word. And what Nehemiah is pointing out here is this. You need to have a right fear of God. Because if you rightly fear the Lord, if you reverentially fear the Lord, you will not fear man. And if you are afraid of man, it's a sure sign you don't have a right regard for fearing God. 
because those two things will not exist together. You won't fear man and fear God at, at the same time. We're to have this reverential fear uh, of God, living as if we know that we're, we're pleasing God. Jesus said in Luke 12, he said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. You be afraid of the one who can kill the body and send you to eternal destruction forever. That's the one that we need to properly fear. We need to have this healthy respect for God and understand he's awesome. He's powerful. No matter what I'm facing, God is on my side. Here's the fifth thing. Fifth God-honoring response. Never give in. Just don't give in. If we get to kind of the end of this account in verse 21... We read these words, so we labored at the work. They just kept laboring at the work. They just kept going on. There were critics and insulters and intimidators and insinuators. They just kept on keeping on. These scriptures here tell us that they worked through the night. Nehemiah decided that those people that were living outside the walls that were coming in and going back out, you know, and spreading the rumors and stuff, he said, here's what I want you, I want you all guys, just stay here. Just come and live among us. We'll have a, we'll have a big pajama party, okay? Just come and live among us right now during this time till we get this wall built. We'll feed you. We'll, we'll sacrifice. Friends, when you are under opposition, when you're under attack, that is the time to stick together. And oh my gosh, it seems like we have, we've failed there miserably recently. We haven't stuck together. We've, we've wandered away from one another. See, th- these are the things that the, the enemy wants us to give up on. Things like loving one another. Being devoted to one another as we are to Christ. Spending time in, in God's word. Engaging in small group life. He wants us to give up on, on the dream that God has given you. He just wants you to give up. But God is calling you, calling me, to just keep on keeping on. There, there's an old story that's told of Satan that one day he decided to have a garage sale. And he was just getting rid of some of his tools. He, he decided to get rid of lying. He decided you know, to, 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 to get rid of hatred and malice and envy and all these other kinds of things. But there was one thing. So he had this sale and was selling all those things. But there was one thing in the corner. It was, it was a priceless tool of Satan. And it was discouragement. Nobody could afford it. Because Satan knew that it was one of his greatest weapons against the people of God. Because he knew that if he could discourage Christ's followers, he could make us ineffective. That we would take our eyes off the Lord. And I believe that we have seen the discouragement of Satan poured out in the church of Jesus like we've never seen it before. And it has caused us to take our eyes off the Lord, to not remember the Lord. And one of the fundamental principles of this book is that we are called as God's people to persevere, to remain steadfast. Jesus' half-brother James wrote these words, and I want to close with this. It's not going to come up on the screen. You may want to write it down. James 1.12, go back and look at it. James writes these words. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, 
he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You will receive this crown of life. Be steadfast in the trials you face. When opposition comes, be steadfast. Let's pray. Lord, we come, we we started out just before this message, we, we were singing, Jesus, it's you alone. Jesus, it's you alone. And Lord, as we've opened your word again today, we have seen that if we try to battle the opposition that comes our way in our own strength, we're going to be decimated. And so we come back to that thought, Jesus, it's you alone. And so we come back to you now, Lord. We come realizing that in your ways, through your purposes, by responding with God-honoring responses, we can face the opposition. We turn and put our trust in you. We can face the opposition. And so we come again to that moment As we've encountered your word, we come to that moment of reflection and ask ourselves, how am I doing here when I face opposition? Am I thriving or am I discouraged? Holy Spirit, I pray because of the blood of Christ that covers your people that we will rise up and remember you, Lord. We'll remember you, Jesus, alone is all we need. That you have overcome the world. And as we stand in you, as we walk in you, as we abide in you, we can face the opposition together. So God, we we come to close our time together, reminding ourselves and each other that we don't have to be shaken by the things of this world that we can stand firm, that we can know that we have been promised as we stand firm in opposition, we've been promised a crown of life. Jesus, thank you for that image, that vision for our future. It does cause us to want to stand firm in you, to rise up against those things that would try to shake us. We trust in you, oh God. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never trusted him with your life, and you were tired of being beaten down by the enemy, the opposer of all of creation, you can trust in Christ this day, that Christ alone. You just turn to him right now in prayer. You just say, Jesus, I need you. I thought I could do it on my own, but Jesus, I need you. And then we want to come around you. We want to be a family to you. We want to support you and encourage you as you grow in Him. So before you leave today, if you pray that prayer, Jesus, I need you, tell somebody. Tell me. Lord, we come. We come to recommit ourselves afresh. To remember you, our God. It's in your name we pray.